Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. New Yorker Vivian Gornick, journalist, essayist, critic, and author of 11 books, including a biography of the anarchist Emma Goldman, is also the queen of the personal narrative. Her reputation as such was made with the publication of her first memoir, Fierce Attachment, about her relationship with her overbearing mother. Her latest foray into the genre, The Odd Woman in the City, covers a lot of ground. Friendship, feminism, class, sex, living alone at 79, and New York, and is part pain and part allergy. She talks with Jaleesa Gracewood about personal narratives both on and off the page. We hope you enjoy this session. A writer, critic, memoirist, essayist, journalist, boulevardier, Vivian Gornick's story is a New York story. She grew up in the Bronx, in a tenement building amidst immigrant families from Eastern Europe, Ireland and Italy. And her childhood was sharply divided by the sudden death of her father. And thereafter, her fiery relationship, can we say that, with her grieving mother, uh, which would eventually become the subject of a wildly successful memoir published in 1987 called Fierce Attachments. But she's also written cultural criticism, book reviews, and reams and reams of journalism, including a stint at The Village Voice in the 70s, reporting on, while enthusiastically embroiled in, the second wave of feminism. To be a feminist in the early 70s, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, she said. And she's continued to write, uh, in and out of journalism, on and off of university campuses, biographies of early feminists, a study of women in science, a guide to writing memoir, a book entitled The Men in My Life, and another declaring the end of the novel of love. <laughs> they go together. <laughs> her newest book, her latest book, uh, The Odd Woman in the City, she's described as a kind of bookend to fierce attachments. Uh, it's, it's a memoir. We'll talk about how it's constructed later. Um, happily, she also assured Kim Hill last weekend on the radio that it's by no means her last work, which I'm very glad to hear. On a personal note, I first encountered Vivian's voice in graduate school about 20 years ago in a tiny town in upstate New York where I was learning to speak academic American as a foreign language. (laughs) (laughs) So every day I would trudge up the hill to a classroom full of verbal gymnasts and then I would do a kind of limp forward roll of my own and then go back down the hill and sit in front of the computer and try and transcribe the voice in my head onto the page. I wasn't getting anywhere fast. But one professor took pity on me and handed me a small, slim book of essays and said, this might cheer you up. It did. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) It was like an escape hatch. Here in in this book was a voice that was lucid and intellectual and funny, and there was not a footnote in sight. It was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> what I loved was... That's the key. <laughs> exactly. You I took... hate turning my back on you, but I don't know how to correct for it. Okay? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I didn't realize that. Okay. You're all over the room. It's wonderful. Yeah. Sorry. So, no, that's great. Um, so what I loved was you took absolutely seriously the life of the mind, but you also found the funny side of it. Um, one line that stuck with me was how... A weekend in a university town can last three years. Um, But I also particularly love the way that you anatomized conversation and Uh the way it brings people together, friends, strangers, random encounters on the street, um, how sometimes it can just fly gloriously along and then other times it deflates and hits the ground, which is to say I'm delighted and only a tiny bit terrified to be here in conversation today (laughs) with Vivian Gornick in person. Uh, Please welcome her as warmly as you can. (laughs) 
So, the odd woman in the city. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to the city in a moment. But who's, who's, <laughs> who's the, the odd, odd woman? woman? Oh, I am the odd woman. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to yeah, describe is, how I came to that exactly. definition? Exactly. What does that signify for you? Oh. Well, you know, the women's movement goes back to the French Revolution, to Mary Wollstonecraft and Vindication of the Rights of Women, uh, written in 1796. And... I certainly am a second wave American feminist. And it was as if with every single wave, which is every 50 years after the French Revolution, the women's movement raises its ugly little head again. <laughs> and we go through the whole thing all over again. It's the longest revolution on record. Um, it, it arouses the worst anxieties in all human beings <laughs> uh, of, of any of the movements for social justice. So when we became feminists, we knew practically nothing about our own history. And I discovered all of the, the elements of the women's movement before me as if I was an archaeologist uncovering, you know, the, bone, the bones of a, a lost culture. And what I discovered was every 50 years we were called something else. Mm -hmm. uh, um, new woman, free woman, uh, liberated woman, right? So the, every 50 years that we started all over again, we were given another, another one of these... Um, backhanded, <laughs> complimentary descriptions. George Gissing is a 19th century English writer who wrote a book called The Odd Women. The Odd Women is about 1890s British feminists. And that's what he called them. They were women who could not make their peace with the world as it was. They were the odd women. I read this book and I recognized myself <laughs> in it. In other words, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. Once, once we stumbled on the whole vast meaning of the feminist movement of struggling simply to gain social justice, simply to gain cultural and political and social equality, once we stumbled on that, it was very hard to put it away. It was very hard to not long to become all that we thought we could become. Now, none of us are liberated. None of us became, uh, you know, these, that will be the generations after. My own, I have two nieces. They were in their 50s. One of them is a passionate feminist. And she, when she says to me, Auntie Viv, you gave me my life, I am as proud as I could ever be of anything. <laughs> she's a marvelous woman. She's accomplished. She's centered in herself. More than anything else, she's centered in herself. And I look upon my own life as a struggle to do that. I hardly consider myself liberated, but I, uh, I, but I, I do consider that this, the struggle to take seriously a life in which you take the responsibility for becoming something, for becoming, for amounting to something, for doing something. Um, I take that very seriously, and when I do, I consider myself the odd woman. So that's really, truly how I describe myself in New York. Uh, <laughs> and that's 
what the word that's what the words mean. Right. So, <laughs> and in some ways, the odd women aren't so rare in New York because at some point you say um, something like fifty percent oh, no, of New York households. Oh no, they're not rare at all. Exactly. No. So fifty percent of New York households are just one person. Yes, fifty percent. Now, this, the the census, the last census showed 50% of New York City households are single-person households, and most of them are women. I mean, they're men too, of course, but it's a remarkable statistic. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of odd people in one place. Well, yes. (laughs) Maybe makes New York what it is? Say that... Does it make New York what it is at some level? uh, Well, I... To some degree, yeah, yeah, to some degree. I mean, it's the mark of this generation. The thing about the city is the city takes its uh, coloration from whatever each succeeding generation is doing. And I would say definitely, absolutely, the, all these single-person households definitely uh, affect the culture of the, of the city. Right, right. Yes. And so in terms of um, writing this book, um, so your, your book about writing yeah. is called The Situation and the Story. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So you say a writer has a, a situation, there's this information, there's a kind of context. Right. And then you have to find your way to the story. And part of how you create the story of the odd woman in the city is by bringing in this odd man. Um, Leonard, yeah. his oh, friend. Oh, so, oh yeah, yes. Yeah, so yes. He's, he's your foil, in a way. Um, and it's, it's We should explain yeah. what all this is about. The Odd Woman in the City is um, it's essentially about me walking the streets of a great city. I wanted to write this book for many years. I wanted to put myself down as a middle-aged, divorced feminist walking the streets of a great city. I wanted to add to urban literature which is dominated completely by men. I mean, almost there's almost no book that, that does that particular thing. And I couldn't find my way into it for many, many years, and I had hundreds of notes of anecdotes, because I do walk the streets of the city, and I walked for 30 years. So I always, I always uh, had many, many different kinds of notes about things that happened, people I met, encounters, situations, all sorts of things. I also had a very great friend, a man named Leonard. He and I considered ourselves a pair. He's gay, I'm the odd woman. <laughs> so we both had a strong sense of social inequity. He was in the gay, um, men, the gay liberation movement, I in the feminist movement. And upon that ground, our friendship became solidified. So we've known each other many, many years. And I wanted to write about that friendship as well, since I considered it paradigmatic of modern life. The way we were going through it was what I thought this, this, this moment in history is. Um, but I couldn't find my way in. As, as um, Joe Lisa has just said, I had a situation. This is what I teach as a teacher of writing. The situation was my friendship with Leonard. The story was whatever emotional insight I was going to bring to that situation and pull out of it. And that's what writing is. All writing. You have a situation and you have a story. So I had the situation, but I didn't have the story. And then I stumbled on the idea of telling this, this story, or finding a story, mm-hmm. through relating it to my walking in the city. Mm-hmm. So the book that I ultimately wrote is about my friendship with Leonard, and it is about me walking the streets of New York, and it is about me struggling to account for myself as the odd woman. And it's a collage that's, that's threaded together. And 
I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works. Um, so, so at one point in the book, you say to Leonard, look at us, 40 or 50 years ago, yeah. we would have been our parents. Right. But who are we now? Right. And, and he gives you a really interesting answer, which I'd, actually, I'd love right. to hear in your own voice. This is our okay. cue. Cue. <laughs> We're doing this yeah. as if it just occurred to us. What a great idea. <laughs> Out of the blue, how nice it would be for me to read something from the book. So it is, as Jolisa says, uh, there are many incidents in it in which Leonard and I are having an exchange of, of one sort or another. And this, this, this happened word for word, only it happened about 20 years ago. <laughs> Leonard and I are sitting in his living room, me in the tall gray velvet chair, he on the brown canvas couch. The other day, I tell him, I was accused of being judgmental. What a laugh, I thought. You should have known me 10 years ago. <laughs> but you know, I'm tired of apologizing for being judgmental. Why shouldn't I be judgmental? I like being judgmental. <laughs> judgmental is reassuring, absolutes, <laughs> certainties. How I have loved them. I want them back again. Can I have them back again? <laughs> Leonard laughs and drums his fingers restlessly along the, the wooden armrest of his beautiful couch. Everyone used to seem so grown up, I say. Nobody does anymore. Look at us. 40, 50 years ago, we would have been our parents. Who are we now? Leonard gets up and crosses the room to a closed cabinet, opens it, and takes out a torn package of cigarettes. My eyes follow him in surprise. What are you doing, I say? You've stopped smoking. He shrugs and extracts a cigarette from the package. They passed, Leonard says. That's all. Fifty years ago, you entered a closet marked marriage. In the closet was a double set of clothes, so stiff they could stand up by themselves. A woman stepped into a dress called wife, and the man stepped into a suit called husband. And that was it. They disappeared inside the clothes. Today, we don't pass. We're standing here naked. That's all. He strikes a match and holds it to his cigarette. I'm not the right person for this life, I say. Who is, he says, exhaling in my direction. Mine? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I have to tell Leonard. <laughs> I have to tell Leonard how he was received in Auckland. Leonard <laughs> <laughs> is a real person. He's not just a composite. He's not a. F no, he's, he's not. Real. There are yeah. com there are composites in the uh, book. Yes, there yes. are. Yeah. Uh, of incidents, uh, there were composites mostly composed of strangers. Right. You know, little things on the street, yeah. uh, which I put together for the sake of narrative drive. Uh -huh. But not he. Yeah. No, he. Uh, many people ask me that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and some he himself, when he read the book, <laughs> he called me up and he said, can I audition for the part of Leonard? <laughs> I was thrilled. I, I thought, he likes, he likes the way he looks in the book. <laughs> and my niece said, Auntie Viv, thank you for not being mean to him. <laughs> his, Leonard's not his name. <laughs> Great name. So, so the image of the people in the suits, right? The suits marked wife yes. and husband. Um, even the people who were wearing those suits were kind of struggling against them. And, and so I think of, oh, of fierce attachments. And your mum, freshly widowed, mm -hmm. and then Nettie, who lives right. one floor up or one floor down. No, right or, next door. Right next door, right. So she's also widowed. Absolutely. Uh, and they, they take off in completely opposite directions. They do. <laughs> 
Fierce Attachments is, a, is the first memoir I wrote, and um, it, it too is a collage, and it was, it, was, it was also a book that I found difficult to structure, and when I did find the structure, it was very similar to that of The Odd Woman in the City. That is a story of my mother, myself, and a woman who lived next door to us when I was a child. And this was in a working-class immigrant neighborhood in the Bronx um, in the 1950s. So, my mother was a woman who... Um, my parents were, were, had a Laurentian marriage, by which I mean like a, a marriage that D.H. Lawrence could have written, mm -hmm. in the sense that their lives were really devoid of any sort of um, fun or grace, or uh, they were working class. Um, but my mother was an intense romantic, and she needed romance. So she, and my father did too. So she, these two made a rom, an incredible romance out of their marriage. He died young. We were all young. Uh, she was, he was, we were, my, me and my brother were. And she became a professional widow, right? She spent the rest of her life mourning the loss of this romance. Meanwhile, next door lived Nettie. <laughs> Nettie looked like Greta Garbo. She was a Ukrainian peasant who had come to the United States uh, on her own, been seduced by a bigamist, had a terrible background, and had married a man who was a merchant marine. So my father died, and Nettie's husband got killed in a barroom brawl across the ocean, right? Yeah. So here are these two women. Nettie looks like Greta Garbo. My mother is uh, a, li a, little Jew <laughs> a little Jewish immigrant, Anna Karenina. She's like, she, as my brother used to say of our mother, she learned early that women suffer. That's what they do. They suffer. So she lay down on the couch to be depressed and to suffer, and Nettie became the whore of Babylon. <laughs> She was infamous in the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> but these two women, Nettie gave my mother sex and my mother gave Nettie respectability. They were <laughs> embroiled with each other throughout my life and I was growing between them, right? So that's the book I thought I was writing. But as it went on and on, I saw that I had a lot of unfinished business with my mother and so the structure changed and it was difficult and it became uh, us walking together in the street uh, in New York, and the women of the past. Me as a little girl, these two women, and ultimately the two sets of women account for themselves to each mm -hmm. other. That was, yeah. So once I realized that, I went back and rewrote everything. I was already struggling for a year with this, um, but it was the most instructive year of my writing life. So that was it. Um, me, Mama, and Nettie. <laughs> <laughs> the, the structure of that book is phenomenal because there's, there's yeah. a kind of hinge in the middle where you head off to City College. Yes. Um, and you've got the, the voices of your mum and Nettie echoing yeah, in your right. head. So, so your mum's message is, life without a man is unlivable, and Nettie's thing is, men are scum, but you've got to have one. Right, exactly. So. <laughs> you got it. That was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are I'm your words. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> Those That's are your exactly very, right. I can't take credit. It Those are like, your words. No, no. That was exactly... <laughs> this is what they actually did teach me, right? Uh -huh. If you don't get a man, you're, you're inept. 
And if you get one and you lose them, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really, that was it. Yeah. And when I went off to school, the two of them grappled for me. You know, each one <laughs> wanted the soul of this, this, this girl. But I got away from both of them. <laughs> well, you did, but the paradox was you, you had to do it by getting married. So there's a, there's a line yes. from Fierce Attachments where you say, uh, I began leaving home at 19 and kept leaving until I was married in the living room at 24 in a noisy act of faith that announced the matter accomplished. Right. So you got it's your true. man, he was your ticket out of there. Uh, you set off into adulthood in pursuit of what you say is, uh, was it love with a capital L and work with a capital W? Those were what you were after. But... As anybody who was at the uh, the gala last night yeah. knows, yeah. That about those husbands, right? exactly about those husbands. You know, <laughs> sitting, sitting next to a magazine editor who leaned over and said, "Once I married a man," is the best start to any story. I ever. once married a man, so, right? Exactly. <laughs> so you twice yes. married. I me. yes, <laughs> I married twice. Yeah, yeah. But you can see, I was a person in a state of conflict, and. Uh, I was never happy <laughs> married. <laughs> it, ha it has l less to do with marriage than to the, with the fact, to the fact that uh, I was a person who did not know who she was at all. So the girl who married e each of these two men who were completely fine, neither one of them was uh, evil in any way, and each of them wanted the best for me. It was me. It was me who, who couldn't... <laughs> I just didn't know anything. I didn't know who I was in the world. I didn't know what to do with myself. And by this time, I was in my 30s. And, uh, and then the women's movement burst on me, and, and then it did clarify me. And then after that, I realized I didn't want to be married. Yes. You know, you used the, the metaphor of the princess and the pea at one yeah. point um, about how it wasn't really the prince you were after. It was that, that sensation, pea. something right. hard under the mattress that woke you up. Well, women like <laughs> us... Well, we Not were that way. <laughs> You people, honestly. <laughs> Are we supposed to be talking like this? I don't know. <laughs> Women like us were in a permanent state of dissatisfaction. That's what the pee beneath the 20 mattresses is all about. And I think the princess was after the pee, not the yeah. prince. <laughs> exactly. So that we could, right, be in an irritated state, yeah. like a pearl in an yes, oyster. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully. A much more seemly metaphor. <laughs> yeah. But somewhere in amongst those, um, the, you were off in graduate school on the West Coast, and yes. in, in amongst those two um, not-so-great marriages, you had this epiphany about writing and, and how that felt and, and how to get to it. And I, I'm going to I don't remember ask that. you to... <laughs> well, luckily, you wrote it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So here's, here's the thing about you. Oh, so you're, you're roaming around the apartment saying to each other, I can't think, I can't work, right. I can't write. But then it was always, I can't work, I can't think. Mm -hmm. And then something happens. Yeah. That was years of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yet those years, and I, I'm in my 20s here, late 20s, I guess. Yet those years were a true beginning for me. I did actually try to sit at the desk and think. Mostly I failed miserably. Mostly, not always. In the second year of my marriage, the rectangle... Oh, uh, I don't think that has been made clear. Um, whenever I felt myself clarifying um, intellectually, uh, an odd thing happened. I, it, was a, it became a metaphor of sorts. I began to imagine my, my body emptied 
of um, distraction, I guess, and as if an, an open triangle had formed inside me. And when I was working, I had this illusion of the, of the triangle. It was just a way of putting words to a feeling. And the feeling was that I was clearing out, that I was, right, that I, well, I was clearing out, and what would come in now was genuine thought, not obsession, not the chaos with which we live all day long, um, but you know, you know what I mean. You know how hard it is to think. I mean, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world. It really is. And writing always, no matter who is writing, begins with a feeling. At least, you know, not, maybe intellectual workers uh, begin with an abstraction. But people like me and most writers, it begins with a feeling. And then your intelligence has to go to work to bring art to those feelings, right? So this became a metaphor for me that uh, when I, and otherwise, what do you do all day long? You obsess about this, that, and the other. I used to think obsess obsessing was thinking, but it's not, it's not, you know. You, you, and, and your mind is filled with the stream of consciousness that's chaos. And mostly, it was Virginia Woolf who said, life is a matter of moments of being. And what she meant by that was to be fully conscious and fully present. And that's no mean thing to accomplish. Um, and I, as a young woman, without much art at all, but struggling and wanting more than anything in the world to write, um, that's how it began, with this image dominating me that Jo Lisa is fond of. So, okay, yet those, those years were a true beginning for me. I did actually sit at the desk and think. Mostly I failed miserably. Mostly, but not always. In the second year of my marriage, the rectangular space made its first appearance inside me. I was writing an essay, a piece of graduate student criticism that had flowered without warning into thought, radiant, shapely thought. The sentences began pushing up in me, struggling to get out, each one moving swiftly to add itself to the one that preceded it. I realized suddenly that an image had taken control of me. I saw its shape and its outline clearly. The sentences were trying to fill in the shape. Oh, look, I haven't read this in years. <laughs> the, just what I was just saying. <laughs> the image was the wholeness of my thought. In that instant, I felt myself open wide. My insides cleared out into a rectangle, all clean air and uncluttered space that began in my forehead and ended in my groin. In the middle of the rectangle, only my image, waiting patiently to clarify itself. I experienced a joy then I knew nothing else would ever equal. Not an I love you in the world could touch it. And that's been true. Inside that joy, I was safe and erotic, excited and at peace, beyond threat or influence. I understood everything I needed to understand in order that I might act, live, be. Then I had to get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> Which is unfair. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really just joking. I'm, 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 <laughs> so, but then you moved back to New York City? Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. yes. And this was in Berkeley, and my first marriage was in Berkeley, California, where I was a graduate student. Yeah. 
So you're a lifelong New Yorker. You yeah. grew up in the Bronx with Manhattan shimmering on the horizon. <laughs> yes, and, that's yeah. right. And yeah. then you worked your way there. Yeah. And, and all of us, all of us who grew up in, you know, New York is Manhattan and then it's the outer boroughs. And the outer boroughs, they're not even like suburbs they, because the suburbs are beyond the outer boroughs. The, out, the outer boroughs are mostly filled with working class ghettos. <laughs> Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Almost everyone I've ever known who grew up in those boroughs comes from the working class. And Manhattan was Araby. Manhattan was where we all thought we belonged. So if you came from Kansas City, you came once. But from the Bronx, <laughs> you went back and forth until you had the courage to finally do it. But yes, Manhattan was, was our golden yeah, and Golden's it, space. it must have changed a lot in the time that you've been there. Yes. How has the city changed? It changes, but it's the same. It's, oh. it, it's, um, it's a city that, re everybody, you, you know this, it's a city that, that uh, continuously reinvents itself. And I have seen, you know, I mean, I'm old now, and I've seen many, many uh, New Yorks come and go, but it always remains the same for me. Um, and I see New York at eye level, I never look up. If I looked up, I'd kill myself. It's, it's like a parody of Gotham. You look up in New York and, you know, the buildings are sort of warring with each other. But on the street, the feeling is the same. And it's the crowds. It's, mm -hmm. it's the street, you, as you know. You yeah. know, you can tell this, this group uh, as much as I, because Jolie says lived in, in the city. And, uh, yeah. and it's the crowds. It's, it's the, the blissful anonymity of the crowds. And... It has a, a distinct feeling. You either attach to it immediately or you don't. It's all temperamental, nothing else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I grew up with people who couldn't wait to get out of the city. And hundreds and thousands, you know, famously come, come to the city from wherever they were born because it feeds them temperamentally. Well, it's the same with any great city in the world. Yeah, everyone in France goes to Paris. Everyone yep. in England goes to London. They're well, world capitals. Except that I met people in Ithaca, New York, like yeah. four hours' drive from the city, who had never been and did not never want to Never been go. to the city? Yeah. No, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, from New Zealand, you have to you know, cross the globe yeah. to get there. You, yeah. yeah. But it's all temperamental, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the hunger within yourself <laughs> that you're looking to see mirrored someplace in the world. Uh -huh. And lots of places do. Yeah. Um, no, this is true. And you talked about anonymity, but it seems to me that, that when you go for walks, and I, you know, I couldn't find one story to ask Vivian to read because there are so many and they're so wonderful. Uh, but it's these moments of serendipity on the street. Yes. With, with random people, you fall yeah. into conversation, something happens, there's a connection, and then you move on. Well, that's a good, a good instance. And that is what this book is full of, my encounters on the street. But... Um, it's a good example of the situation in the story. The mm -hmm. encounters are the situation. All the people, because the city is full of street theater. I mean, people are acting out all over the place. Mm -hmm. And they do it everywhere in huge, in huge cities. Uh, but New York is really um, remarkable for the amount of, of, of acting out. And I get into it with everybody. I talk to anybody <laughs> who talks to me. And I often uh, get involved. What goes on in the book is when I could make a story, right. when I could bring a tale to point. Yeah. So that's, and it feels like some, so days, that's all, some days it works. Like some days every yeah. encounter, every kind of eye contact, every joke 
gets kind of yeah. picked up. Yeah. And then there, you say there are other days where you go out there and it just kind of falls flat or some... That's uh, right. The response is not good. What, How, do, how does that... Well, well, some days it rains and some days it shines. True. <laughs> some, <laughs> some days you feel good, some days you feel terrible. Yeah. Um, but you could always rely... For me... Uh, the, it, it has a healing power for me. Walking the streets is just, mm -hmm. you know, wh wh when I'm sitting in the house and I can't work or whatever, and it goes on and on, and I'm getting depressed and anxious <laughs> and lonely. And if the world has receded, I can't remember the last time I talked to a human being. If I finally force myself to get up, put on my coat, walk out the door, get in the elevator, go downstairs. I live in a big apartment house. And the minute I'm out on the street, it all changes. Mm -hmm. Instant, you know. Something happens. Yeah. So I, I have to ask this parochial New Zealand question that we always ask of visitors. Oh. Um, d does Auckland feel like a city to you? Have you no. seen any street theatre? No? Okay. <laughs> Did I say that so fast? Yeah. <laughs> you haven't had a single moment with somebody on the on the Auckland Street. Auckland's yet. a small city, yeah. like a million others. Mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, it doesn't feel like a big city. <laughs> That's okay. I don't know. Maybe it would if I lived here. What do you all think? <laughs> you know? Well, I'm it's, it's a city with charm. It feels like <laughs> California, actually, to me here. Huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. It feels like California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we might have to send you to Wellington for a bit of New York vibe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you said after 9/11, the city felt different. Yeah. Um, because what had been lost was nostalgia, and I wanted to ask you what you mean yeah. by that. Well. Um, 9-11 was a terrible thing, and, uh, and I was there and, um, and watched the buildings go down. And um, it, was, it was stunning beyond stunning. Uh, you felt like you were watching civilization come to an end, like the whole world had gone homicidal and suicidal at once. It was breathtaking. And um, after it, and I, like everybody else, um, you know, you just didn't know what to do with yourself. And for, like for six weeks, I'd run into people on the street, they'd ask me how I was, and I'd start to cry, which took me by surprise. I, I didn't feel sentimental or anything like that, but I just felt stricken. And I found that the city did not comfort me at all. I couldn't find my way back in any way. I felt like I was walking through, I wasn't, but I felt like I was walking through a devastated landscape. And I found myself reading European writers, women. I found myself reading, see in, in the United States, as in your country, we have never lived through bombings. We have never lived through a, you know, a world at war on your doorstep. We, we, we never have lived through it. In America, all you know is the stories that men tell, because men went to war. Men were soldiers, they went to war. Women and children in the United States stayed home and did nothing. In Europe, there were many women writers who endured war. Among them was Natalia Ginsburg in Italy, Elizabeth Bowen in London, and Anna Akhmatova in Russia. These three women, for one reason or another, their work began to make me feel 
like a human being again. And I found, like everybody else, I couldn't bear to look at photographs of New York. I couldn't bear to listen to songs that had New York in it. I couldn't bear to watch a movie on television that had New York in it. And I didn't know why. And when, these, when I read these people who write, wrote these modernist novels, um, for instance, Elizabeth Bowen wrote a great novel called The Heat of the Day, and it's set during the Blitz in London during the Second World War. And Natalia Ginsburg is also Italy during the Second World War. And of course, Anakmatova is many years before, although she lived through the Second World War too. And I tried to figure out what it was in their work that was soothing me somehow. And it was, and it was as if they were standing at the end of history. It just felt like that. They were standing at the end of history and looking past it, past this horrible bleakness, um, to just tell it like it was. And suddenly I realized what was missing from their work was nostalgia and hmm. sentimentality. And that's what made it strong. And I was both thrilled and amazed, and um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just what I used it to. But it was, it was very uh, enlightening, it was very thought-provoking. And I pride myself myself on writing without, without sentiment, without nostalgia, that I want to put down my own hard truths. Uh, and, and they added to the richness of my store of, uh, of acceptable thought on that score. Did I answer you? That is fabulous. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to say, my, my brain's going in five different directions now, trying to well, kind of work out where to take down, that. Calm okay. down. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just pick one. Um, so a current of your work is, is that search, um, you say at some point you, you felt, as a child, you felt like you'd been deprived of a perfect friend from birth or something. So oh. there's a search for that simpatico, somebody who will give back your words as you sent them out. Well, you know what she's talking about. Everybody dreams of a soulmate. Everybody dreams of the perfect friend with whom you have perfect communion. And in English literature, two great writers um, spoke brilliantly to this. Uh, Keats, who, who said, who, we long for the ideal friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ke Keats was great about it. Uh, Ke Keats, who died at the age of 25, but lived in a time when you knew you were going to die young and somehow getting on with maturity uh, took holes earlier and faster. And Keats, at one and the same time, he said, all one needs in the world is one ideal friend. In other words, someone to commune with. And Wordsworth said of his sister, not his wife, uh, because of our perfect communion, I am never alone anywhere in the world. Right. So what, what we, he, they were both talking about was existential loneliness, that every human being in the world feels alone and every human being in the world longs to make some connection with another human being, which will give you back courage for life yourself. So, and nobody finds it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a hard slog. Uh -huh. you know, Whatever happens in life, it's a hard slog. And when I was a kid, growing up in this, this ghetto in the Bronx, um, I longed for, and all I had was the other, these other working class kids on the block, and I was telling stories all the time. And I wanted, that, I wanted these stories to be received, right? 
I would, I'd want to come to my friends, my little friends, and say, you know what happened up the block? And then I'd tell them some story about what happened in the grocery store. <laughs> and then they'd look at me blank <laughs> and say, what do you mean? <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> and it became a... Um, uh, it became... Yeah, I guess a kind of metaphor. It became uh, a marker of some sort uh, that I l was looking for the perfect friend. And when, in fact, what I have found is writing is the perfect friend. I was going to say, <laughs> you have a lot of people out here who want to hear those stories now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. writing is my perfect friend. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that works. That works. Because also... Um, what pops up again and again in your work is, is there's a, a momentary perfect friendship, right? You'll yeah. find somebody and just, it is on. Like, it's happening. You understand each other perfectly. You go away to the beach. It's all good. And then it kind of burns out. Um, but also that, that friendship can be work and there can be a kind of solidarity in it. Yes. Even if it's not ide ideal, yeah. even if it's not love, it's kind of work and there's an honour in that. And so there's a, um, a beautiful description of uh, a writer, an elderly writer. She's in an old folks' home. Uh, she's very lonely. Oh, yeah. And you, and you visit her. And yeah. You, and you bring her solace. And then yeah. after she's gone, you discover that a whole lot of people have been doing We're this We're doing along. the same thing. And you have that beautiful yeah. image of... of you want me to tell them what that yeah, was all that, about? that would be lovely. Yes. Um, a friend of mine, a writer in New York, a w woman who was then, and this is quite a few years ago now, she was then in her 80s, and her life was, uh, took an odd turn. She'd had a lot of success early in life, in every way. She married a man she adored. Um, she wrote novels that were famous in the 60s and 70s. And, and um, they had money, they had a country house, they had the perfect life. And in her 70s, um, her reputation began to fade. The books that she wrote were no longer being published, and her husband left her. <laughs> so, okay. Now, this was a woman of great pride, and she was really a lady. She was really a lady. She, she had a stoical character. She never complained. She lived. She was proud. She, she dressed beautifully. She looked great. She was in her 80s, and, and doing her life, you know, and the city, this city that we're talking about with this, with this 50% single person household, received her. She had many, many friends of every age, of many ages, and then suddenly she was felled by arthritis. Her whole body was overtaken by arthritis. She couldn't dress herself. She couldn't do any. She couldn't. It was terrible. It was just terrible. It was, it was such a bad rap. It was such a bum rap. She didn't, you know, nobody deserves anything, but certainly she didn't deserve this. The upshot was she had to go into assisted living. And she had children who were, you know, grown people and very devoted to her and everything. But in the end, she had to go into assisted living. And she went into an apartment in a beautiful house uh, on Fifth Avenue and 106th Street, all the way at the top. It was Harlem. Already it wasn't fashionable Sixth Avenue, which is in Midtown, uh, but it was lovely up there. And she had an apartment with a view of Central Park. But in fact, she was in an institution, and she what had nobody really to talk to. In other words, there was there was no soulmate. There were many people in it, and the place was very depressing. No matter how beautiful it was, it was a warren of walkers and canes and wheelchairs and you know, it took the heart out of you just to see that. But more important than that, 
was that she really had nobody. She had chatter. She had lots of chatter all day long, and she could have small talk, but there was nobody there with whom she could really unburden her heart, speak her mind, mm -hmm. and find someone who, who, like me, like as a kid, who, who, who would receive her. And I began to visit her and others. I mean, uh, there were two or three of us who were young. We weren't young anymore, but we were youngish feminists, mm -hmm. and we were devoted to her. And we used to go. And we used to go because the thought that, th that this woman, who was so brilliantly conscious, who'd spent her life devoted to being a conscious human being, was now being taken care of in her body, but her consciousness was being completely ignored. And that was the part of her that, pe that the world and life was acting as if it didn't matter when it was the only thing that mattered. So I used to go and visit her regularly. She would look like death itself when I'd come in, slumped in a chair, looking terrible. But within 15 minutes of our conversation, she was alive and as young as she could look and uh, utterly into our conversation, which was about books and people and the world as we'd always known it and the headlines in the newspapers. And, and there she was. And after she died, I discovered that there were a number of other people whom I didn't know who had been doing the same thing. And I conceived this image of her at the center of a circle that covered Manhattan. And all these people were uh, spokes on the wheel of this circle moving towards her. And when we reached her, the spokes lit up. <laughs> and that was at the funeral, it felt like that. But it, she, what happened to her was my greatest lesson about uh, the perils of, of real old age. And that it's not a medical story, it's, it's a spiritual story. It's that you need to stay spiritually alive, alive in your mind and your feelings, your thoughts, um, than anything else. And that's very hard, very, very hard to achieve. I tried, actually, I worked for seven years with, another, with a group uh, trying to build a house for women and men in the arts in Manhattan, a senior residence. The idea was that we were all writers, or uh, the group that I had gathered. Um, and the idea was just to raise the lowest common denominator of growing old, just, and all, everybody being you know, sort of warehoused in a place because of age and money. Uh, and I wanted to just raise that lowest common denominator so that people who were somewhat like-minded could, um, could begin, you know, at that place. And it's happening everywhere in the world, but I couldn't make it happen in New York. Um, every year that we struggled with it, you know, the property was a, another million dollars and another million dollars, and uh, we, we, it just fell apart. But that was the idea of it. And it's an idea that's taking hold everywhere, it really is. No, I mean, we all need company. Yeah, intellectual we all company, need company. Um, in the form of exactly. books, in the form of people, conversations like Real this. Real conversation, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no. Um, but thank you so much for sharing all of those thank stories. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Amazing. You were great. Thank you. <laughs> Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.